Welcome to the Investor Download, the podcast about the themes driving markets and the economy now and in the future. I'm your host, David Brett. Hello, I hope you're all keeping well. The United Nations Climate Change Conference, otherwise known as COP27, kicks off in Egypt on November the 6th. And while the great and the good are meeting to discuss potential solutions to the climate issue, we'll be running a series of podcasts alongside our usual content covering some of the stories and themes coming out of COP27. This is the first. It's about what it takes as a company to be a climate leader. It's hosted by my colleague, Simon Robb, who discusses everything from net zero to greenwashing and corporate responsibility to why it matters to investors with subject experts Simon Weber and Isabella Harvey Bathurst. We hope you enjoy. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts, you're listening to the Investor Download. Hello, I'm Simon Robb, Investment Product Analyst for Schroeder's Global and Thematic Equities Strategies. I am joined today by Simon Weber and Isabella Harvey Bathurst, both of whom are portfolio managers specialising in climate change here at Schroeder's. With COP27 on the horizon, it's an opportune time to discuss the theme of climate change. It remains near the top of the agenda for investors, but also for policymakers and companies. The topic of net zero is increasingly being discussed at earnings calls of publicly listed companies, while the phrase itself is seeing more Google searches than ever before. This is in recognition of the sheer size of the challenge that climate change represents. The general consensus is that the world is well behind on the globally accepted target of limiting global warming to 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, and the goal of limiting to 1.5 degrees is even more unlikely. Today, we are here to chat about the concept of net zero alongside the topic of corporate decarbonisation, where companies are making commitments to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions over the next few decades. But before we jump into the thick of it, Simon, Isabella, hello. Hi, Simon. Hi, Simon. Thank you for joining me today. If you will humour me, I would just like to start with some jargon busting. Some of the concepts I've already mentioned, but perhaps for the benefit of the listeners, could you explain what is meant by net zero and also what the 1.5 and 2 degree scenarios are about? Absolutely. So when we talk about 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees, we're talking about levels of global warming relative to a pre-industrial baseline, as you said. And it's widely agreed that limiting the average rise in global temperatures to less than 2 degrees above that pre-industrial level by the end of this century may help to avoid the worst of the effects of global warming. The signs are all there, with fires raging around the world, in Greece and Turkey and in California. A summer of record-breaking heat is drying up rivers across Europe. The toll from extreme weather has devastated vast regions of sub-Saharan Africa, suffering from the worst drought conditions on record and a severe food crisis. Once in a century, flash floods killed hundreds in Germany, Belgium, and China this summer. The UN has issued another urgent appeal for funds to help families in flood-hit Pakistan to cope with what it's describing as a public health emergency. Hundreds of thousands of Americans lost electricity, government offices and schools closed and flights were cancelled as winter storms engulfed the US, Southeast and Mid-Atlantic states. The climate is getting more hostile and today the UN said it is already too late to stop some of the devastating impacts of climate change. 
And net zero just means that there is a balance between the greenhouse gas emissions produced and removed from the atmosphere. And that still sounds pretty abstract. And I think it's important to say that in practice, this means widespread and deep decarbonisation coupled with the effect of some natural and artificial removal of carbon from the atmosphere. And just joining those two things together, we need to get to the net zero scenario by roughly mid-century in order to be on a path of 1.5 degrees of warming. And that's why net zero is such an important goal. And Simon, how can net zero be achieved? What must be done by governments and companies and the investment management industry itself? We, we think about it really in two ways. The first is that we need uh, really a kind of revolution in the technology we use across uh, the, whole, the whole economy, um, a new energy infrastructure, so think about the deployment of renewable energy, replacement of fossil fuel technologies, shifts in our transportation to electric vehicles and other uh, clean mobility, but also new manufacturing processes, um, changes in our food and agriculture industries that really reduce the emissions that are generated. So think of that as new technologies enabling um, a transition to a, a low carbon economy. But the second element of that is taking those technologies and every company, governments, individuals and companies, doing their bit to get their, their house in order. Uh, and that's where really industry and company level decarbonisation or climate targets come in, is setting ambitious goals to make those changes at every, uh, at every entity and progressively over the years um, to you know, really en enable net zero by having every player uh, being a part of that transition. Get in touch with us by email at shorterspodcasts at shorters.com or visit our website shorters.com forward slash investor download. We saw a lot of activity around last year's um, COP26 event in Glasgow with, with companies announcing targets to reduce their emissions. Um, and that momentum is carried through to this year's COP event, um, which is great, uh, particularly given what's happened this year in, in 2022 with um, the market environment and the general headwinds that companies face. Earnings from big tech, they continue to disappoint. Shares of Meta plummeting this morning down over 20% after the company missed revenue estimates for the second quarter in a row and lowered its outlook for the fourth quarter. Supply chain problems and higher costs weigh on Ford's earnings. So our call for next year is that earnings will be about 5% below this year. And a route in stock markets is hurting investors. The global slowdown is expected to leave real GDP below its pre-pandemic levels costing the world more than $17 trillion, close to approximately 20% of the world's income. But how do you identify companies at the forefront of decarbonizing their businesses? Or in other words, what makes a company a leader? Yes, yeah, it's a great question. And I think, you know, these companies, um, these climate leaders, as we, we describe them, we firstly would say that they have ambitious targets to decarbonise, which is consistent with 1.5 degrees or better. Um, but the next question, of course, is, well, how do you differentiate between a company that just announces a target and a company that really means it? Um, in other words, how do you judge the integrity of the target? And so a few of the things we look for, a few of the questions we ask are, well, 
it might sound obvious, but has the company actually set short, medium and long-term targets which cover scope one, scope two, and the relevant scope three emissions? We want to see those key interim targets, not just a really distant 2050 goal. Um, secondly, is the target verified by the Science-Based Targets Initiative um, or another independent organisation which has a rigorous and industry-specific process for, uh, for auditing targets? We want to see evidence of a robust plan, so actual measures to decarbonise. For example, do they source energy from renewables? Are they electrifying their vehicle fleet? or carrying out energy efficiency upgrades, or evolving their product suite to reduce life cycle emissions. On the other hand, if a plan seems to rely really heavily on carbon offsets, rather than actually working towards cutting emissions, then we would view that as lower quality, for reasons we can come on to. Next, we want to see whether there's some accountability. Is someone in the management team actually incentivized to deliver the plan? Perhaps the, carbon, the company's implemented an internal carbon price. That would be a really good way of spreading accountability throughout the firm so that carbon costs do get factored into decision making at all levels. And then finally, a track record always helps. Has the company already demonstrated good progress? And maybe just to give you a, a sort of concrete example before we move on, we see Microsoft as an example of a climate leader. Today we're making the commitment that by 2030, Microsoft will be carbon negative. By 2050, we will remove from the environment all of the carbon we have emitted directly or by electrical consumptions since our company's founding in 1975. This is the decade for urgent action for Microsoft and for all of us. And these ambitious plans are backed up by tangible decarbonisation measures like using an internal carbon price and pledging to use 100% renewable energy by 2025. So you've, you've talked about um, you know, features of, of leaders in, in this space, um, but there's been much written about um, greenwashing by companies overstating carbon neutral claims, misleading pledges to reduce their emissions. Um, Simon, what, what are some of the pitfalls to look out for in assessing a company's climate commitments? Yeah, it can be um, very difficult sometimes to get behind the, uh, the headlines, behind the PR statements and really unpick what is going on at a company level. Um, some of the pitfalls um, would include, in fact, uh, I'll give you three examples. You know, one would be how a company is meeting its emission reduction targets. So take, for example, a commitment to 100% renewable energy. Um, one company might build a whole set of renewable installations and equipments to generate their own renewable electricity that could power all of their operations. That would be a real uh, incremental investment that would decarbonize and get rid of their emissions. Another company might claim the same shift to renewables by buying certificates every time someone uh, in the world builds and operates a renewable energy installation, it might be in another country, a certificate is generated. And those certificates can be bought often very cheaply. Uh, so even if that certificate's been created in a completely different part of the world to where a company is operating, sometimes those certificates can be bought and used to claim that they are um, using 100% renewable energy. Those two scenarios are obviously completely different. Um, another pitfall would be really understanding the difference between intensity and absolute emission reduction targets. A company that is mature or even declining 
will might much more easily meet an absolute reduction target than a company that's growing fast. Equally, an emission intensity reduction target may lead to still quite significant absolute emissions growth if the company is growing fast enough. So there's no necessarily right or wrong answer there, but both need to be evaluated when we're considering the strength of an emission reduction target. And finally, this idea of scope three. So scope three targets refer to emissions, or scope three emissions refer to emissions by the value chain, from suppliers, from customers of products. And if there's no target covering scope three, it can be quite easy for a company to meet their own scope one and scope two, so their direct emission reductions by outsourcing. If you transfer uh, an element of your production sell an asset to a supplier, that could lead to an immediate reduction of your own company emissions. It is really just a change in the scope of those emissions. Um, so that's a transfer of risk rather than an actual emission reduction in itself. So these are all things that have got to be you know, looked out for and evaluated carefully. And why, why is this important to companies? Um, Isabella, what are the consequences for, for laggards who are not pivoting towards a, a low carbon operating model? Well, we, we certainly believe that all of this does have really important um, financial implications for companies and therefore investment implications. Um, so firstly, we, we believe that laggards will face higher risks. So regulatory risks and litigation risks are going to be a clear feature of the effort to address climate change. Um, and we think laggards will find themselves facing grow growing risks. I mean, just think about the regulations coming down the line. You're not going to be able to buy a new petrol or diesel car in the UK in eight years time. You're not going to be able to install a gas boiler in a new build house in three years time. Now, ministers at Westminster have unveiled plans for what they say is a green industrial revolution to hit the UK target of net zero carbon emissions by 2050. From 2030, the sale of new diesel-only and petrol-only cars will be banned. There will be more money for new nuclear power, including 16 mini nuclear power plants, and a target to replace 600,000 gas boilers a year by 2028. And yeah, I'm, I'm being a bit UK-centric in my examples, but this pattern is replicated across several European countries. This could be the future of the European auto industry, 100% electric. After weeks of debate, MEPs voted in favour of a ban on sales of petrol, diesel and hybrid cars from 2035. It really is a growing trend. And this is the corollary of net zero, targeting high emission activities with regulations and bans. And then secondly, we think lagging companies will face higher costs. Um, and then on the flip side, the leading companies should be cost advantaged. So until very recently, companies haven't been rewarded for making investments to cut their carbon emissions. And we think this is changing. So carbon pricing has become a much more meaningful cost in the EU. And there are a number of other carbon markets developing around the world. We've seen the real-life business impact in the utility sector in Europe, but it will become more widespread as the emissions trading scheme expands to cover other sectors in time. One, one final question from me, um, and I'll direct it to you, Simon. Flipping the, the last question on its head slightly from the perspective of a, of a climate leader, 
obviously, as, as Isabel has described, um, companies leading this transition won't be exposed to the same risks or costs that laggards face. But is there anything to be gained from being a leader? Yeah, we think there clearly is. Um, and I describe it as an emerging network effect. So think of it, think of all these companies setting their climate targets, their emission reduction targets, and that many of those including, increasingly including those scope three targets around the supply chain. A great example is Apple, who have a target to be carbon neutral, uh, net zero, including their supply chain in 2030. Apple's commitment to the environment spans everything we do, from how we design our products, to the materials that go in them, to how they're manufactured. So every Apple product that you buy should be net zero at that point. Now, to achieve that goal, all of the manufacturers and component suppliers to those products need to align with Apple's goal. And they are putting more and more pressure, uh, more and more financial incentives on their supplier base to align with them and to help them meet that goal. Um, you know, earlier this year, they had signed up 175 individual suppliers committed to that same 100% renewable energy use on their Apple work by 2030. And we hear from a lot of those companies who say in the, the, the kind of the requests for tender in, in the, the, the new business pitch process that they have with Apple, how it's becoming a critical factor in winning business. So you can see how businesses that are aligning themselves with that net zero pathway will increasingly need and want to work together. Um, and that should, should end up being a business opportunity, a growth effect, a network effect. Um, there are other examples too. Um, we, you know, we hear all the time how individual companies are trying to reduce their emissions footprint. So for example, from corporate computing. And if you move your computing power to the cloud, you get lots of efficiencies, much more energy efficiency in the use of energy. Uh, but also the likes of the Microsoft and Google Cloud uh, are already using 100% renewable energy in their operations. So a business can, can really meet some of its emission reductions by moving their compute, corporate computing business to the cloud. That's another good example of how companies trying to meet their targets are having to work together and it becoming a business driver. Some, some very interesting points, Simon, particularly around what, what this signifies in, in terms of scope three for, for companies, the, the magnitude and scale of the issue facing companies, and how it will impact all companies in some shape or form. It'll be fascinating to see how this theme develops and how companies tackle the reduction of their emissions. If you want to find out more, Schroders is running a blog in conjunction with COP27. If you search Schroders COP27 blog, you'll be able to find it. But for more content, written, video, audio or otherwise, visit schroders.com forward slash insights. Well, that was the show. We very much hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out more, check out our website, schroders.com forward slash the investor download. You can also get in contact with us about anything in the show or ideas for future shows at Schroders Podcasts at Schroders.com. Please remember to subscribe to us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review. We're now doing one show a week, which will be available every Thursday from 5pm UK time. Thanks very much for listening, but above all, keep safe and go well. Cheers.
the value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation of any funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy.